Whilst we get ready, won't you please open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. We are continuing our journey this morning through the section of the Sermon on the Mount that we've entitled Facing the Giants, simply because uh, <laughs> if there were ever six things God could have chosen, or well, through Jesus, to tackle, oh my goodness, it's these in our society. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. And so I have a bit of a cold, <laughs> and I've been taking some flu meds. So I'm hoping I'm not going to be too spaced out and that you can follow me uh, quite carefully this morning because I'm preaching on a topic I would never, ever want to preach, which is divorce. <laughs> and um, I was thinking yesterday of maybe messaging one of the guys and saying, hey, would you, would you preach uh, this morning on divorce? And I could just imagine them saying to me, you're on your own, Matt. There's no ways you're going to be doing this. And so, um, but yet in my preparation for this Sunday, I must say, I have been extremely blessed. And um, George, would you mind just popping these lights on for me so I can see these lovely people's faces? Uh, I can see when you're doing this or when you're doing this. Yeah, there we go. All right. So we're in a section of Matthew uh, chapter 5, which is a very specific section. Jesus introduced this section in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, and he's wanting to show, this is very important, anybody who wants to follow Jesus he wants to show how their lives are going to be at a much higher level of righteousness. Remember, righteousness means being right with God in every area of your life. That the righteousness under his authority as a follower of Jesus is going to be way higher than these scribes and Pharisees that followed the law. And uh, he uses six examples when he compares how his righteousness of his followers compares to that of the scribes and Pharisees under the law of Moses. And we saw in the first round of facing the giants was this thing of unrighteous anger, remember? And unrighteous anger and reconciliation. If you look across our society, look across families, isn't that a massive thing? Anger, right? Ripping our nation apart, families apart. The second is lust. We looked at how much, we saw how our society is obsessed with sex, Right? And how it is so, so uh, uh, sneaky. Lust and anger grows into something that can be so destructive. And it is no mistake this morning that we're going to be looking at divorce. It's a follow-on from what's been said. And next week, Mark will be looking at keeping our word. And then the following time will be revenge and selfless love. So we're looking at these six things, which if you are going to be a follower of Jesus, you're going to face. You notice that girls on a journey, if you're walking through life, these are the things that are going to test your faith. And I just have to point out to you this morning, the courage of Jesus. You might not be used to this kind of preaching where we take our time going through these things slowly. But can I just say, as a church, we believe that there is not a single aspect of Scripture we don't need. And the way of coming to the Sermon on the Mount where every single word matters, it's we are coming under the word we don't come over the word. And if Jesus speaks into divorce this morning, I need to remind you, it's important. It matters to him. And the way I want to tackle it is this. is I want us to look at the passages of Scripture which deal with divorce. It's the first thing. The second is to look at what are the purpose and principles of these Scriptures that God brings out when dealing with divorce. But the third and most important thing is, how do we apply this to people? You know, in my preparation for this morning, I've been amazed at how theoretical 
these theologians can be, that when they talk about divorce, I'm going, have you ever pastored anybody in your life before? Because when we talk about this thing of divorce, we're not talking about a theory. We're not talking about a sort of uh, hypothesis. We're talking about something that matters to people's lives, how we apply it. Not so? Let me tell you, divorce in our culture is probably one of the greatest areas of hurt there is. And I've been amazed at how insensitive and also just in terms of how almost and pastoral these guys have been. And so this morning, people matter to the Lord. They matter to the scriptures. And how do we apply Jesus' teaching on divorce to people? So before you switch off and say, oh, well, I'm not married yet. I don't need to know anything about this. Or maybe I'm happily married. Or maybe I don't want to go back to the past. I've been there, done that. I'm trying to put the past behind me. Why should I listen to this young snotcorp talk, talking to me about divorce? Well, let me tell you firstly, one day you may well be married. You need to know what you are in for. Not so? Secondly, is that we have all been affected by divorce here, either directly or indirectly in some ways. And we need to know how do we counsel people who are going through this? You're going to have friends. You're going to have family members. You're going to have colleagues. Isn't it so interesting how difficult it is to speak into something like divorce? Because we're not actually quite sure. Society says one thing. We were a bit hazy about what Scripture says. Shouldn't everyone be happy? Shouldn't everyone be able to do it? But God kind of has this, this standard of marriage. I'm telling you, so often we don't speak up when our friends are going through difficulties because we're not confident in what God actually says. And can I say, even as an unmarried, not yet married person, you have a voice in your friendships which you can cause encouragement to come and direction and counsel that can be life-giving in a very, very precarious situation in a friend or colleagues or family member's marriage. The, 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 the fourth is this, third is this, sorry, is I will be married for six years in November. I have a phenomenal wife, but let me tell you, I have learned no marriage will be spared storms. None. It is only a matter of time. If you are married, you might think they are Gabriel, Angel Gabriel. You might think this is the perfect person that you've married. But I tell you now, Jesus talking about these giants, the pressure on marriages in our day and age will force us to face the playing field of marriage. What are the rules of engagement? And if we are not clear about this now, I tell you when the storms come, we're going to be in trouble because we're not going to have the rationale or the spine we need to face them if we don't understand Jesus' teaching. Ha, but the fourth is this. What about somebody here this morning that has been through a painful divorce? And you're trying to pick up the pieces. Let me tell you, have you ever wondered if you've been divorced, if God allows it? Have you wondered if maybe you have a clear conscience that uh, if you've broken your marriage vows, what does God think? Are you free to remarry? Aren't you? Where do I stand? Where does God stand? Does God still hold me account to my former husband or my former wife? Am I still one with them? Am I released to be married? These things are real questions because they affect our conscience. And for a divorced person here, yeah, I just say, I understand how painful that process has been for you. And I want to help you bring peace, if at all possible. But the fifth is this, and can I say, and I want to start here, is contending for marriage. Please listen to me now. Contending for marriage 
in the church as a whole, whether you are yet married or not, this thing of marriage matters because it is a display of the gospel. When we uphold this thing of marriage as the church, we are saying, we are upholding, we are contending for the good news of Jesus Christ. And I want to start there this morning. And I want to start by explaining to you what God's ideal for marriage is. This is very important. Is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it was before there was any sin in the world, when relationships were perfect in terms of sinlessness. God said, therefore, a man shall leave a woman. <laughs> no, that's not what he said. Sorry. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Jesus commenting on this in Matthew chapter 19, he says, What therefore God has joined together, God has done it, he's joined together, let no man separate. My friend, that is God's definition of marriage. It is heterosexual. It is between man and wife, husband and wife. It is monogamous, meaning it is between one man and one wife. It is permanent. You have to hold fast to the one God has grafted you into. And it is, it is exclusive. It's one flesh. Marina and I, nobody shares that one flesh with us. We are one flesh in marriage. It is exclusive. Can I just point out to you this morning that this incredible picture of marriage is the picture of what happens to us in our salvation. You remember? The scripture tells us we were separated from God. There was God, there was you and me. And God in his sovereign mercy stretches out this hand of grace and he draws us to him. And when we come to faith in Jesus, when we come to faith in Jesus, something incredible happens. Romans 6 verse 4 says it like this. We were buried, therefore, with Jesus by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The second we came to faith in Jesus, that old Matt, that old Vickers, separated from God, you can put your name there. If you've put, come to faith in Jesus, that old self separated from God died and God brought you to newness of life by making you one with Jesus. The two have become one spiritually. What is signified in marriage of one flesh is what's signified in salvation. My friend, if you have come to a place of faith in Jesus Christ, you are one with him. God has plunged you into him. He is your security, your covering. He is the, where you are hidden in. You are one with Jesus. The two have become one flesh. And this is the amazing thing. And what God has joined, let no man separate. Have you ever read in Romans chapter 8, verse 35 and 38, 39? I was reading it last night. Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or damage or sword. 
This is Paul. For I am sure, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? I recently did a marriage and I opened up their vows. And I had to tell them today, and they say today, I call all your present to witness that I take you to have and to hold in good times and bad times, plenty in times of need, sickness and health, to love and I promise to love and respect you as long as we both shall live. Can you see what's happening? Don't you think Romans 8 sounds like a, a vow? A wedding vow? Can I say to you this morning, Romans chapter 8 is God's salvation vow to you. He is saying, in Christ, can anything separate you from my love? Can anything split this oneness in Jesus that you get to enjoy in him? I have put you there. What God has joined, let no man separate. On your best day, on your worst day, when you're flying spiritually, when you're down in the dumps, no matter where you are, can anything separate my love in Christ? Can anything separate my love from you in Jesus? No, you're one with him forever. He has bound you, and what he has bound, let no man separate. Praise God. Praise God. And when you look into the marriage covenant church, you are looking into the unconditional love of God for you. Unmarried people, not yet married people, the reason why we celebrate marriage in the church is when you see that bride and that groom looking into each other, making these vows towards each other. Yes, you're looking at your friend getting married, but what you need to remember is this is what you have in Jesus. You are bound to him. You are one with him. Do you know that kind of intimacy in marriage of one flesh? Let me tell you, that's the level of spiritual intimacy you get to experience with the Son of God. You're not some distant stranger in heaven. When you're going to rock him, it's kind of calling, throwing up your prayers to Jesus as a, as a distant alien. As a di no, where he is, that's your home. You're bound to him. You're heading towards him. And do you know what Jesus says? You know what Jesus says as the, as the sign of God fulfilling his salvation vow to you is? is there's going to come a day when this bridegroom Jesus is going to come for you, his bride. And when we are at the consummation of all things in glory, you know what's going to happen? We're going to have a wedding feast. God is going to say, the sign of my fulfilling my promise to you of unconditional love and bringing you to glory is the moment when we're going to celebrate with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this glorious wedding feast of marriage, which is a signal of our permanent place in heaven. Marriage is so prized in the church. Why? Because when we look into that covenant, we see our position in Christ. And we contend for God's ideal for marriage because it proclaims the gospel. The good news that in Jesus, what can separate you from the love of God? Totally secure. And therefore, in the Old Testament, when Israel turns away from this God that saved them and, and, and has gone into covenant with them, it is called adultery because it is a breaking of vows. And it's so serious to the Lord. So why does divorce happen? If this is God's ideal for marriage, why does divorce happen? Well, the first is we can see the flow is very clear. How many of you have witnessed, maybe in your, don't put up your hand, in your own marriage or friends, the evidence of unrighteous anger? 
where one is just so angry against the other. And no one's willing to lay down their weapon, right? When we talk about reconciliation, the one wants this, the other one wants that, and no one's willing to come down to the middle ground of peace. No one's willing to lay down their weapon. Let me tell you, the first thing that kills a marriage is unrighteous anger. But the second is lust. That was giant number two. And it can either mean overt adultery. So within the marriage relationship, one of those spouses goes and sleeps with another person outside of the marriage. Or, Jesus says, is when you see that Moi Macy or that nice guy and the eyes, ooh, they look really good. And in your heart, what lust is, is this. In your heart is, is when you start thinking, oh, that person would be better than what I've got. And let me tell you, lust is the cause of discontentment in marriage. Is when you start to look around and you start to look and you say, oh, look at that. That person, that girl, that guy is better than what I've got. And it happens in Christian circles. You watch that lovely Christian husband being so nice to their wife. And then you look at what you've got and you go, oh, dear. I say. Let me tell you this morning. We have to guard against this discontentment that lust brings in. And the fourth giant that we'll look at next week, Mark's going to tackle, is not keeping your word. And I'm worried that for us today, in this modern society, marriage has become a matter more of convenience than keeping your word. Our yes must be yes, and our no must be no. When we stand before each other and we give our vows to the one that God has put before us, in that moment when we say to our, our bride or groom, and we say, I take you. Let me tell you, God is taking you at your yes, 100%. And he is knitting you to your spouse so that you have become one flesh. So, what do we mean by divorce? Well, my definition of divorce means it's the right to remarry with a clear conscience before God. It's knowing that God has released me from this vow, right? That's the point of divorce is to know do I qualify to marry? Do I qualify to break this one flesh vow with my spouse? And so Jesus tackles this by looking first at what the law of Moses says, and then he moves it to what he says. That's been the pattern of this whole section. So let's read together from Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say, this is Jesus, to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Those are big words. But let's start where Jesus starts. He talks about this in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 to 4, the moment when a Jewish man has had enough of his wife. And the scripture says in Deuteronomy 24, it was for some indecency. The husband could go, I'm writing you a certificate of divorce. There we go. Marriage is done. Out you get. And it was done in order to protect the woman. Let me tell you, in those days, hopefully it's changed, but in those days, women were nothing. In the Middle Eastern times, a woman basically was there to have babies Make your home look great and cook for you. I don't know if anything's changed in your relationship. Hopefully it has since then. Some of you women might feel the same. That nothing's changed uh, two, 3,000 years later. But the reality is this is, this man wrote a certificate of divorce so that she could remarry. And that was largely her income. She could not produce 
a kind of she could not uh, own a business or or do anything. Like, she, the, the the way that a woman survived was by marriage. And so, if you divorced this woman, you gave her a certificate of divorce, entitling her to remarry. And the the scripture says this: that the husband had to think very carefully about this because if he wrote that certificate of divorce, he could never have her back. That one flesh was broken, it was done. And this couldn't apply to adultery because under the Mosaic law, you got stoned to death for adultery. That's hectic, eh? So when God talks about adultery, he's saying under the Mosaic law, the, the marriage is automatically finished because the one who committed adultery gets the death sentence. So, in Jesus' day, there were two schools that were trying to interpret what this word in Deuteronomy chapter 24 means in terms of indecency. The first was this rabbi called Shimei, and he said it was a very, very rigorous word. In other words, only for extreme moral failure, serious misconduct, could you apply the word indecency that would entitle this Jewish man to write the certificate of divorce and send her on his way. But there was another school called Rabbi Hillel, and the Pharisees and scribes loved this guy. Because he said, indecency could mean even if she burnt your supper, even if she got a little bit saggy in terms of how she looked, if she embarrassed you, you were having a nice meal, and she didn't present a good enough meal or make you look good in front of your friends, it was indecent, and you could divorce her. And I could think of uh, the first time Marina cooked for me, she burnt the entire meal. I remember that, my wife. If that was Marina, I could have said to her, out you get. You're no good as a wife. I don't want you. And the Pharisees and the scribes went after this guy's teaching because, hey, great, party on. If I see my wife getting a bit saggy, I can find a new one that's a bit firmer. If I see someone who is maybe a great better cook, I can get her in the kitchen and kick out the one that can't cook. It was a wonderful thing for the guys. And Jesus gets asked the question, where do you stand on this? Do you stand on the one that says, no, no, serious moral misconduct or frivolous? Man, she can just cook a bad plate of food and all she gets. What do you think, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 9? And Jesus won't go back to the law. He goes back to the beginning. And instead of focusing on the loopholes for divorce, he focuses on God's ideal. And he says, although Moses permitted you to do this, right from the very beginning, it was not so. Right from the beginning, God said what he has joined, let no man separate. And he says the reason why divorce was allowed in the first place was because it was a concession. Because of the Jewish people's hardness of hearts. It was not always like that. And so where does Jesus stand in Matthew chapter 5 verse 32? He says, that's what the law said. What do I say about this thing? Well, I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And what is Jesus doing here? Can I remind you of the pattern of what's been happening? Notice he starts with the law, and he shows what the standard of the law is. And remember, when anybody asks you to keep the law of Moses, you tell them, I'm sorry, that standard's too low for me. Because he'll say, in the first giant of anger, he'll say, do not commit murder. That's what the law says. And then what does he does? He says, his standard of righteousness is not just murder, physical act of murder. It's when you get angry in your hearts. 
His righteousness is higher than the law. The second is lust. He says, it says, do not commit adultery. But if you even just look at a woman lustfully, with lustful intent, you've committed adultery in your heart. His standard is higher. So it's just the same with divorce. Moses says, you can summon it right, a certificate of divorce, off you go. Jesus says, a follower of me is somebody that holds marriage to almost a watertight level. And he only gives one exception. He gives one exception. He says, if there is any sexual immorality from one spouse, if one spouse is unfaithful, because of the understanding of the Mosaic law, if it was adultery, you got stoned, then the marriage was vile and null and void. The one flesh was broken. Then the marriage is dissolved. If on any other grounds divorce happens, it means that God still sees those two people as one. And so that's what he's saying. Is when he's saying, if you divorce your wife for any other reason other than sexual misconduct, what happens is you expose her to adultery because in the Middle Eastern times, she had no other means of income except remarriage. And so this bond before God, it's still one. It's still one. And by you separating it and releasing her, anybody who marries her, anybody that she develops another relationship with that leads to marriage, they are committing adultery against the one flesh that was a vow before God. That's what Jesus is saying here when he says, anyone who ever, sorry, uh, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, saying any other ground, it's still one. Now just bear with me, I'm going to explain the whole thing. But at this point, you need to see Jesus' point, is how strong he takes the one flesh. If we divorce on any other grounds other than sexual immorality, he's saying, in God's eyes, you're still one. And you're exposing your poor ex-wife or ex-husband to adultery because this bond is still one. And if anybody marries her and she has relations with that man or that woman, what happens is there's adultery. It was the first time Jesus ever extended the adultery command to divorce. So the standard of marriage under Jesus is extremely high. Now, how do we take this scripture and try to understand it in all of the scriptures that deal with divorce? It's not the only one. And looking at this, we need to look at how do we pastorally, how do we apply this teaching to people's lives? We're talking about real life here. We're not talking about some lab test tube theory. And there are five New Testament scriptures that talk into this. The first two are from the Gospels of Mark and Luke. And in Mark 10, verse 2 to 12, and Luke chapter 16, verse 18, there is no exception to divorce. Jesus gives nothing. Zip. He just says, what God has joined, let no man separate. The second is, we see in Matthew 5, verse 31 to 32, and Matthew chapter 19, verse 3 to 12, Jesus gives one exception. But then, which is sexual immorality, but then there's this verse by Paul 
in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 10 to 16, and it kind of sidelines you. He says, there was something happening in the churches where, and it was largely women who were converting. They would convert, but when their husband, or let's say if it was a, a, a guy, if their wife found out that they'd become a Christian, often what would happen is when they got home, either the home was empty or the door was locked. Is in order to become a follower of Jesus, these men and women lost their families. They were deserted by their spouses, and they lost their livelihoods. They lost their kids. They lost their legal covering. There was no protection for Christians early on in the church against the Roman law. It was seen as a cult. It was seen as something to be suppressed. And I just have to point out for you that this level of brokenness, of desertion, was massive in the New Testament church. And Paul goes against the words of Jesus. Can we just listen to that this morning? He goes against Christ's command, and he says, there's another exception. It's not just sexual immorality, it's desertion. Come back to in a moment. So you get this weird mix, and how do we apply this to this matter of divorce? Well, the first is this, and we have to start here, it's so important, is we see in all of the New Testament scriptures is that marriage is God's ideal. Divorce is never commanded, ever. And it is only a concession. In other words, it's second best, or, as one commentator puts it, a lesser of two evils. And when you read your New Testament, what you will find is it produces a sense in you that marriage, this is it. This person that you are doing your vows for, this person that God is, is joining you to, it's done. There's no back door. There's no second best. Or, uh, because the person becoming second best, this thing of marriage is deadly serious in Scripture. When you say, I do, it is done. And can I say, this morning, this understanding of how God binds you to your spouse and what God has joined it, no man separate, it is the most important mindset which will determine whether or not a marriage will survive. You see, marriage is not a dealership. You can't trade in for the model and then say, okay, now next model. No, no, it's a done deal. And can I say to you today, maybe there's some marriages here that are on the rocks. And maybe you're feeling a bit discontent in your marriage. Can I read you what D.A. Carson says? Our society, including many professing Christians, has rejected biblical conceptions of both love and marriage. Love has become a mixture of physical desire and vague sentimentality. Marriage has become a provisional sexual union to be terminated when this pathetic pygmy love dissolves. How different is the biblical perspective? In God's word, marriage and love are for the tough-minded. Marriage is commitment. And far from backing out when, the thing, when, the thing, when things get going rough, marriage partners are to sort out their difficulties in the light of Scripture. They are to hang in there, improving their relationship, working away at it, precisely because they have vowed before God and man to live together and love each other for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death separates them. Love is the determined commitment to seek the other's good, to cherish, shelter, nurture, edify, and show patience with one's partner. And this commitment, worked out because of a deep-rooted obedience to God, 
brings with it the emotional and sentimental aspects of love as well. Can I say the most life-giving thing to your marriage is this. This person that I'm married to, it is the only one. And as a Christian, if you understand that this person has been bound to you by God himself and what God has joined, let no man separate. Let me tell you, if you know this is all that you've got, you're going to make sure that you're going to work at it. Because in the end, this is the best you've got. And can I say, if you know there's no back door, no matter how wonderful the person outside your marriage looks, no matter how tempting that nice little bookie is at work, no matter how wonderful that man is who's so compassionate towards you, when you realize that this person is God-given and God is saying there is no second best for your life, this is it. Let me tell you, you will fight for your marriage. Who here wants a miserable marriage for the rest of their life? Nobody, not so. Can I say it guards against discontentment? And this is why Jesus keeps shifting the focus from the loopholes that permit divorce to God's ideal for marriage because he knows how sly our hearts are. He knows on the background we love looking for back doors, we love looking for ways out. When things aren't going nice, it's uncomfortable. And we start to think of, well, maybe this isn't God's plan for my life. Maybe this person wasn't the right person in the first place. Maybe this person isn't the best for me. Maybe you can name all the decisions you like. My friend, if God has bound you together, that's the best you've got. And you've got to make the most of it while you can. And Jesus clearly shows us here that irreconcilable differences, unhappiness in marriage, Frequent batting of heads, not seeing eye to eye, having fallen out of love with each other, saying it's time to move on, wanting different things in life, or not having a connection anymore, or maybe there were some health issues that the person that you can say now is not the same person that I married in the first place. All of these things, and there are many more, these reasons for divorce in our modern day and age, my friends, they do not carry weight. God will not permit it. If our spouse is faithful, we are bound. And if we divorce them under these circumstances, we grieve the Holy Spirit. Can I say, it is possible for even a godly man like John Wesley, who founded the Methodist Church, he had a miserable marriage. His wife used to sit in front of, if it was me, Marina would be there, and she used to heckle him. She used to insult him whilst this guy was preaching. And I'm telling you, it wasn't a lovely bed of roses for John Wesley, but he was bound to this lady, and they were bound together until the day he died. She was a thorn in his flesh. I'm going to put it like that. And can I say to you this morning, what God has joined, let no man separate. And if we can get that in our minds, when we marry, there is no back door when we marry. That's what we must think. This is it. It's done. It's not if I don't like you, I have a way out. No, no. You are mine. I am yours. God's grace in my life is flowing towards my partner, not anybody else. God's grace flowing in my life is towards my marriage, not towards this person that I think is more wonderful. God's grace in my life is flowing towards this covenant. And if I step out of it, I'm going to damage that channel of grace. And amazingly, I tell you what, can I give you some advice? Don't bother reading academics. They are useless. 
Read pastors. Read people that have to shepherd people for, for decades and decades. John Stott and Artie Kendall, who have pastored men and women in their marriages for decades and decades, have said this. Most marriages can be saved. John Stott puts it like this. He says, he will not meet with anybody if they want to ask about divorce. He'll start with marriage and reconciliation. And amazingly, he says, by the end of it, more often than not, marriages are saved. They might need professional help. They might need counseling. They might need encouragement and, 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 and being spurred on towards what God wants. But they have found that there is hope. And the pessimism of the world towards marriage and divorce, let me tell you, it is not the pessimism of the God of the Bible. There is hope for restoration in marriage. And can I ask you this morning, I've had to ask myself, if we're taking the Sermon on the Mount seriously, and your marriage is on the rocks at this moment in time, how much of the Beatitudes are operating in your life? Can I just run through them quickly? Are you poor in spirit? Are you reachable, or do you always have to be right in your marriage? And your spouse wrong? Have you mourned over your own sin in the conflict or only your spouse's? Have you practiced meekness? In other words, are you defending your ego or are you defending your marriage? Do you want to please God more than anything or do you want to have your own way? Friends, to hunger and thirst for righteousness in marriage is to contend for it. Do you practice being merciful? You know what the promise is for those who are merciful? They shall receive mercy. Are you pure in heart or are you bitter in spirit? Are you a peacemaker or a war maker? The more I, cont I think about these Beatitudes, the more I realize they are the atmosphere for a great marriage. Have you applied the Sermon on the Mount in this current context? And can I point out again, even in the worst case scenario, even if your spouse has committed adultery and you have the right before God to divorce, and they come back broken and repentant, asking for forgiveness and reconciliation. Can I say to you, even then, you have a choice. God never commands divorce. It's a concession. In other words, he says, even, even when there's adultery, the worst sort of pain, and your spouse is coming back and saying, I'm so sorry, I've blown it. Can you forgive me? I want to give this another shot. God says, you have a choice. Divorce is not the fate to complete. I ask you this morning, church, is adultery an unforgivable sin? I'm not minimizing the dramatic damage it causes, but can I remind you of Hosea, the prophet, whom God told to marry the prostitute Gomer. And this lady, she was unfaithful to Hosea, and God says, you go after her. You contend for this covenant that I have made with my people. Your story, I'm not saying it has to be your story, I'm saying there is a story where God says there was grace for reconciliation even in the midst of adultery. And even that reconciliation, my friend, it is the picture of how God deals with us in showing us complete forgiveness when we've blown it. Even in adultery, there is still grace upon the marriage ideal. So, 
in saying all of this. Although we see the New Testament always upholding the ideal of marriage as first prize, we do see God is so gracious towards brokenness. Jesus' concession in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 allows the innocent spouse who had adultery committed against them and whose spouse has no interest in reconciliation to have a fresh start. God says there is a place for a new beginning. And for me, that is profound. Because in this Matthew 5, remember, the Sermon on the Mount is not law. It's very different to the Ten Commandments. When you read the Ten Commandments, it's very different to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount are these principles that we apply by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus says, man, in this space of the Sermon on the Mount, there is an opportunity for a fresh start for somebody who has experienced the brokenness of having I've experienced adultery done against them in a marriage. I tell you, that is significant for me. Is that Jesus is aware of the brokenness caused because of sin. And he's saying there is an opportunity for a fresh start. Jesus could have said the bond is forever. Like in, he does in, in, in Mark and Luke. But yeah, he says no, no. There is a concession for a new start. But then we get to Paul, which is even more profound for me. Just think about Paul for a moment. Here he is a pastor of multiple churches, and he is dealing with this pastoral crisis of these people coming to conversion and experiencing the brokenness of these spouses deserting them because of the faith. Can I tell you tonight, this morning, sorry, Paul goes against the words of Jesus himself. Jesus says, only on sexual immorality can divorce be permitted. Paul goes, knowing Jesus' words, not only is it sexual immorality, but in this context there can be desertion. And they can have a fresh start. Don't you think that's significant? Don't you think it's amazing? That Paul is able to look into the brokenness of what is happening in his churches. And he's not applying the law. He's not applying the letter and saying, listen, did your spouse that's deserted you commit adultery yet? Only until he's committed adultery, are you free to be married? He says, no, in the context of this brokenness, the gospel comes to the rescue. There's a new start. There's a possibility for a future and a whole new family to begin. Out of this brokenness, there can be healing. Praise God. That there is this amazing little piece in 1 Corinthians 7 where God says there can be a new beginning. And I challenge anybody that holds to a hard line in marriage, which says, and it's been preached, and it is devastating. I know a well-known man in Britain that preached in PE a couple of years ago that says you have to divorce your second marriage and go and remarry your original spouse because the one bond stands. It's ludicrous. You're causing the same break in a marriage for the sake of what? A technicality, a kind of view of Scripture where Jesus even gives a concession for? How hard are you going to apply the letter of the law when we are to walk by the Spirit? And friends, Paul saw it. He saw the brokenness and he said, there is an opportunity for a new start here. He comes to the rescue of the brokenhearted. 
And so when we talk about violent, physical, emotional, and mental abuse in a marriage, sexual abuse, substance abuse, and deprivation of the household, when the safety and sanity of a spouse and child are at risk, when a spouse is being shattered, crushed, broken by these things, can we exercise pastoral wisdom like Paul to offer them a way out and a new start? Yes. Yes. God comes to the rescue of the broken. And so should we. And Paul does not dilute 1 Corinthians 7 in any way of God's marriage ideal. But he recognizes that there is a space in marriage for a new start. Where does that leave us? I felt strongly in the Lord. Church, can we recommit consciously ourselves today to God's standard of marriage? Will you before the Lord, unmarried, not yet married, hoping to be married, married, will you go, there is no way out here for me before the Lord. This person's one with me. I'm going to treasure her or him. I'm going to make it as if this person is one flesh with me. I'm going to contend for this marriage. Is there anybody here whose marriage is on the rocks and this is a message just in time for you? Even if you've been divorced and no one's remarried yet, let me tell you there's hope for reconciliation. I know a lady in our church who's living proof of it. Will you contend for what God has joined? Will you say today, this person is precious to me. She or he is an extension of me. I'm contending for the kingdom to come on this marriage and no other. If you are young and not yet married, will you say, this is the standard of marriage for me. And if the person I marry does not share the standard, it's a no deal. Secondly, I need to go one step further, and I'm going to end it here. Is if you have divorced on any other grounds other than the exceptions mentioned, have you confessed that and repented of that before the Lord? Jesus calls it adultery. And I want to remind you how he handles adultery. In John 8, there was a woman caught in adultery. And Jesus does not condemn her. But he helps her recognize that what she has done is wrong. And what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say? He says, go and sin no more. He doesn't moralize her. He doesn't point the finger at her. He doesn't say, you should have done better. You must, you must go marry the guy you just had sex with. He doesn't say anything of that. He says to her, now that you have confessed your sin, now that you've repented, go and sin no more. What does that mean for us today? If you remarried and God has blessed you with another wife or husband and kids, my friend, treat her or him as if it's the first marriage and there's never, ever going to be another one. You go and you into that marriage, into that family life, and you say, this person, God, this person is mine forever. You recognize, yes, 
That should not have happened. But God, before you now, I take your marriage ideal as this is the person who is one with me. I contend for her. I contend for him. These kids, this family of mine, it is the most important vow I'm making outside of Christ. Is you do not perpetuate the sin that caused the breakdown in the first marriage. No, no. You uphold the righteousness that makes it thrive. Amen. God is for marriage, but God is also for a new start, a fresh beginning. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning with just a fresh awe, Lord, of how much you love us, that we are one with Jesus, that we enjoy fellowship with the Son of God, that, God, we are bound to you, Jesus. We're so grateful. And I pray marriage in the church, in this church, would be contended for so that when the world looks in to the marriages here, Lord, they would see the hope of the gospel. That for better or worse, in sickness and health, you've promised to bind us to Jesus. And through the storms of this life, as the marriages weather it, Lord, we'd remember so our salvation vows, whether it's you look after us, you shelter us, you bind us to your goodness in Jesus. And I pray that as people look into the marriages of your people, Lord, let's see the hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.